Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We're going to talk about policing today, and in particular, the opportunity to reform policing in a way that lowers the danger that it poses to African Americans. Neil Gross is a former officer and a sociologist who's written a book about a handful of departments that have been able to change their culture in a way that has mattered. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining us today. It has been two and a half years since George Floyd was murdered by a police officer in Minneapolis. Two and a half years since millions of people flooded the streets calling for a change to policing or an outright end to it. Two and a half years since Americans called for a reckoning with not only the way officers treat African-Americans, but with all of the ways in which we live in an unequal, unjust society. And since that time, we've seen a lot of police departments try to change. While most police department budgets have not been slashed, there are more models cropping up where police officers work alongside mental health clinicians or allocate work to them entirely. But that doesn't mean enormous issues have been entirely solved. Michigan police have shot and killed 135 people since 2015, according to the Washington Post. And over two months in 2022, Detroit police shot and killed two people who suffered from mental illness. And the broader statistics are still pretty bleak. About one of every 1,000 black men die at the hands of a police officer. And that rate is two and a half times higher than the rate for white men. But, of course, the vast majority of police work is unrelated to responding to violent crime, about 96% of it. Much of the work is routine traffic stops and dealing with mental health crises, property crime, drug abuse, and homelessness. So maybe the issue with police is about officer expectations and department culture. Maybe we need to both give police higher status and train them to lean into their soft skills to develop relationships, to listen more, to build a greater understanding of the areas they cover and to weave themselves into their communities. That could allow police to do two things that are both challenging and crucial. One is to deter crime, and the second is to find those who've committed it. The truth is that people who live 
in communities of color need safety. We need public safety. And I don't see how we get to that ideal without some form of law enforcement officer. But that takes a lot of trust and cooperation. And yes, love between those who are policing and those who are policed. That's never been the broad mentality of officers across the country. But maybe it can be. And maybe it already is in some places. Neil Gross is a professor of sociology at Colby College, and he has suggested in a recently published book that that is the case. In Walk the Walk, Gross, a former cop, suggests that changing police culture is actually possible, that officers can and will lean into the more communal and relational side of their work, and that when they do so, they become better at their jobs. That's where we begin the conversation today. Can we reform police departments to be more appropriately helpful and supportive in the communities where they police? Professor Neil Gross, welcome to Detroit Today. It's great to be here with you, Stephen. So I want to start here. You're a scholar who was a police officer, and we've been going through a lot of conversations about policing in this country in light of all of the very high-profile murders of unarmed black people at the hands of police officers. So as someone who has sat in the squad car and worn the badge and the uniform, I'm very curious about your take on what is wrong with policing in this country right now. You know, I, I think there are there are many things that are wrong with policing in this country right now. And I, I think you're certainly right that uh, we're at a moment when uh, there have been efforts from you know, all around the country to make policy changes uh, that will reduce the use of force, uh, that will, uh, as you suggested, uh, involve police more with uh, mental health providers. All those kinds of changes are, are ongoing in a number of agencies, um, many in response to um, the uprising uh, after uh, George Floyd's murder. And I think that's all, all to the good. Um, the, the upshot of my book, the upshot of my research is that while those changes are important, while policy change is important, it's hard to change police departments unless you shift the culture, unless you shift the mindset, as you suggested, more in the direction of community orientation, a focus on soft skills, uh, but also a move away from the traditional us versus them mentality, suspiciousness, you know, a, a abiding concern with danger, things that have defined police culture traditionally. So that cultural shift is key. And how do you make that turn? If, you, if, you, if we accept the premise that this is a cultural problem in addition to uh, a policy problem, what, what are the things that, that change the culture inside departments other than policy changes? Mm -hmm. So for this book, I went inside three police departments that I thought were doing something different, uh, very different kinds of agencies in different parts of the country, one in California, one in Colorado, another in Georgia. And I wanted to answer exactly that question. These were agencies that uh, I, I discovered were 
up to something different, both from conversations with, with experts, from talking to chiefs, uh, and, and from my own look at the data. And what I found was that really it comes down to leadership. Uh, leadership uh, matters, um, but a particular kind of leadership. You know, in these uh, departments, in these agencies, um, chiefs had to be creative. They had to be willing to change big bureaucracies. They had to be open to what people in the community wanted them to do. And they had to have real credibility from their officers. Uh, with those things in place, they were able to nudge their departments forward in positive directions. Um, so all those pieces are important. You have to have a creative and visionary leader uh, with real credibility inside the organization. And you also have to have community members who are willing to engage and, and help push that police department forward. That was the case in, in all three of the cities that I studied. Mm. So I want to talk a little about your personal experience here and how relevant it is uh, to the things that uh, you're talking about. As I said, you were a police officer and uh, early in your career as a police officer, you were in a situation where you, a white man, almost shot an unarmed black man. I wanted you to tell our listeners that story about the things that went wrong that led you that situation, but but also what you drew from it, um, you know, after after it was over. Yeah. So I was a police officer many years ago in the early 90s uh, in the city of Berkeley, California. And, you know, I went into policing for the reasons that most people go into policing. You know, there's a stereotype that people go into the job because they're hungry for, for power. The truth is that most people who go into law enforcement are, are idealistic. And, you know, I, I wanted to fight crime. I wanted to help people in my community. Um, I wanted to make the justice system better and, and more fair. So right after college, I uh, went to the police academy and uh, started working uh, on the streets of, of Berkeley. And in the book, I tell the story of a particular incident that's really stayed with me over the years. Uh, it was a traffic stop for a very minor traffic violation. Uh, and uh, a passenger um, refused to stay in the car. And we were taught in the police academy that it was crucial to make sure that when you're on a traffic stop, the driver and passengers have to stay in the car, hands have to be visible to you at all times. I remember very clearly going through the police academy uh, and seeing posters on the wall with the survival creed from the California Highway Patrol uh, at the time, which was, uh, the quote was, don't let them kill you on some dirty freeway. So I was very concerned with officer safety. Uh, and um, the passenger wouldn't get back in the car, began walking away. Uh, and as I you know, went to restrain him, uh, he struck me in the face and a fight ensued, uh, which I was unable to de-escalate quickly enough. And you know, the lesson that I, that I took from that was that um, you know, while uh, good intentions are, are great, are important when you, for people who go into law enforcement, uh, while training is important. Uh, I realized that I had been nurtured in, uh, in a police academy and taught in a department where the culture of the place was, you know, don't take flack from anyone on the street. Uh, you know, you're always uh, have to watch your back. Uh, there was a level of paranoia on the job that I acquired. And I drew the lesson and the realization that that cop culture makes a huge difference in what officers actually do day to day on the job. Mm -hmm. What what happened that you didn't shoot this this person who uh, you had uh, this encounter with? What, what I want to get into your your mind a little bit here. Mm -hmm. What stopped you 
from either drawing your gun, I don't know if you did, uh, but even if you did, what stopped you from, from pulling the trigger? Uh, I, did, I did draw my weapon. I did have my, my weapon drawn. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the answer is that uh, at a certain point in the incident, um, the passenger ran up onto the porch uh, of a house uh, and uh, began throwing rocks at me and uh, a partner who arrived to provide backup. Uh, that's when I, I drew my weapon. Uh, and uh, he held a very large rock over his head and was about to throw it in, in my direction, in the direction of my, my partner. Uh, and I, I think the main thing that kept me from shooting uh, was, uh, first of all, that he, he did drop the rock uh, when ordered to. Uh, and uh, second, um, there was something about the situation that felt so out of control to me. Um, and I think at a certain moment, I, I realized that it had, it had escalated out of control uh, and that uh, you know, I needed to draw it down just a bit. Um, but it's hard to say if he'd kept throwing rocks, if he'd hit one of us, it's hard to say what I would have done. And, and the sort of line of escalation here is something that I'm really interested in, too. I mean, this starts with a routine interaction between a citizen and a police officer over something yeah. fairly, fairly minor and escalates, as you say, to this point where it's a physical altercation and you have two choices. One, to de-escalate it uh, through some sort of negotiation or, I guess, physical subduing of, mm -hmm. uh, of the person or to shoot that person. Um, and... I guess what I'm trying to get at in your mind is that distinction. I mean, this sounds like so many of the incidents that we have seen cell phone videos of in the last few years where it ends with someone being shot, someone who is unarmed uh, being being shot. Is it is it partially the just the interaction itself. In other words, the idea that police officers are uh, are approaching uh, people over minor things, uh, or is there there there's something else that brings us to this these very tense moments, these very crucial moments where split second decisions are are what's at stake for somebody's life. You know, I think it's many things. Um, in, in this case, uh, this incident happened uh, not too many years after the Rodney King verdict. Um, it happened at a time when the crime rate was quite high in, in, in Berkeley um, and in, in Oakland, and this was uh, right at the border of those two, of those two cities. Uh, it happened at a moment when uh, there was a lot of intensive policing of uh, this particular neighborhood, uh, uh, which uh, was uh, poorer than the rest of the city. Um, and it happened in the context of, uh, as you suggested, the outset of the discussion of distrust, a moment of really heightened distrust between police uh, and, uh, and citizens of, of the community and, um, and black citizens of the community in particular. So I think that was all in the background. That was all part of it. Um, I think that the other piece of it, though, really was the mindset. Right? If you are uh, expecting that the people you're going to interact with are, uh, are out to hurt you or out to kill you, uh, then you can easily misperceive actions that they take if they're unarmed as, as threats in your direction. Um, if you're uh, trained in a department that you know, 
and says, you know, look, if you if you don't take appropriate officer safety steps at every moment, uh, and that's the most important thing for you to do, uh, then you're you know, an inadequate officer. Then that paranoia is going to be part of what uh, you know, you're you're dealing with on a, on a daily basis. And I'll say, in contrast, in the agencies that I worked for, or that I that I, that I studied, two in particular, um, one in uh, in uh, Longmont, Colorado, another in Lagrange, Georgia, officers are still very conscious of uh, officer safety concerns, they really put a premium on de-escalation. Both agencies uh, put a real value on preserving life uh, uh, almost at, you know, at any cost. Uh, and I think if I had been trained in one of those departments, uh, if I had absorbed the culture of a department like that, I think I would have approached the stop in a very different fashion. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Neil Gross, uh, professor of sociology at Colby College, former police officer and author of the book Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. We also want to get going with you, our listeners, on the phones and on social. Call and tell us what you make of this conversation that we're having, this argument, if you will, about what to do about policing in our country. Are you a police officer or were you previously a police officer? What do you think needs to change about policing in this country? Uh, Also give us a call and let us know if you're a citizen who has had enough of this and thinks that some sort of abolishment of policing, uh, getting rid of police departments, Uh, is the answer. We're going to ask our guest about that movement next and continue to talk about the things that he has seen in some departments that would qualify as reform. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've decided to join us today. We're talking about policing and the efforts and the conversation around reforming uh, the police in in many different communities. Neil Gross is our guest. He is a professor of sociology at Colby College, a former police officer and author of a recent book titled Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs defied the odds and changed cop culture. We want to hear from you as well during the conversation. Give us a call and let us know what you think of the ongoing efforts to change the interaction between police and the citizens in the communities where they are police officers, uh, especially uh, uh, this is uh, a conversation that that bumps up against all kinds of uh, inequalities that are baked into our society. It is African Americans and African American men in particular uh, who tend to suffer more from police violence than uh, other citizens. Uh, what does that call for? Does that call for some form of abolishing 
the police or police departments? Uh, or are there other things that you think we can do short of abolishment? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Neil, before we get to our listeners, I want to put that question to you about reform. The idea of defund the police, I think, is uh, um, a pretty complicated concept. One, uh, because I think it's misinterpreted in in many ways and and done so um, uh, for cynical for cynical purposes. But this idea generally that we don't need the level of policing uh, that we have, uh, that we need to pull officers uh, back from interacting with with citizens over over many things and that some of the funding that we send to police departments would be more effectively and more humanely spent uh, on other things uh, that would also reduce crime what what what's your take on that where do you fall on the the spectrum of of reactions to those ideas look i get where the impulse comes from for uh, both defund and abolition and its many forms. Um, to me, it's wrongheaded. We'd all like to live in a world where uh, it was so peaceful and cooperative that we, we wouldn't need armed police or we wouldn't need as many armed police. You know, I don't see that happening in the US anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, there aren't any examples of modern societies that don't have police. And you know, we know that when you scale back police presence, uh, in neighborhoods, violent crime tends to go up. And I'd add that uh, while international comparisons on funding and police per capita are a little bit hard to make because the data are uh, sometimes apples and oranges, generally speaking, the U.S. seems to be right in the middle of the pack among um, developed countries uh, in terms of its police spending. You know, that's not to say that there aren't uh, inefficiencies and uh, indeed real problems with uh, how police resources are allocated now. Um, for example, I'd like to see us spend uh, quite a bit more on detectives uh, and less on patrol, uh, in part because as you put more effort and resources into solving cases, uh, you stand a better chance of actually deterring crime. Uh, and I also want to say that I don't see any reason why you shouldn't spend money on the police and also strengthen the social safety net. I certainly would favor uh, that kind of strengthening. Um, but we can we can do that while also maintaining a strong and professional police force. That seems important. What about, though, the, the research that suggests that policing and modern policing, I guess, adds to the tinderbox of, mm -hmm. of tensions in, in communities, especially poor communities, especially communities of color? Doesn't that suggest that um, that our approach to it is somehow um, worsening things and not making them better. And then also, I wonder what you make of the idea or the ideal that uh, anti-poverty measures, uh, lifting up of communities, uh, expansion of opportunity, would also, you know, reduce the incidence of crime in a way that uh, that might require less less policing 
No, I, again, I think the the impulse there is is right on. Uh, and you know, if you look at the social science evidence on the relationship between poverty and serious street crime, um, it's not a it's not a one to one relationship. Um, but we do know that uh, more serious forms of criminality uh, do tend to develop more uh, in uh, poorer neighborhoods. And so, from my point of view, long term, absolutely, yeah, we need more good paying jobs uh, in um, in poorer neighborhoods uh, that don't require a college degree. We need more investment in those neighborhoods, uh, including investment in housing stock. Um, we need more mental health services, uh, particularly in schools. All those things are important. Uh, but we also know that uh, it's possible to bring crime rates down uh, without uh, substantial change in the underlying socioeconomic structure of neighborhoods um, that happened very much the case in New York City. Um, you know, over the past 20 years, barring the last few years, uh, not a significant change in poverty rates there, but a significant decline in crime. And that had a lot to do with changes in policing. So I think the answer is uh, not to get rid of the police, but certainly we need to fundamentally rethink how the police operate and, and how the police view their role in the community. Mm. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. <laughs> Let's go next to Phyllis and Warren. Phyllis. <laughs> okay. Hi, Stephen. My question is, uh, I'm sorry, but I don't understand how you can imagine and what kind of dream world this is that the police department can change, but society can't. And that with the condition of society, with its bigotry and with its prejudices and everything, how can the police department change? Uh, it's a great question, Phyllis. Uh, and, and Neil, I, I'd love to have you answer it. I mean, this idea that somehow we can change the culture of police departments when our culture is so broken, I, I think is a really interesting way to think about this. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's this idea out there that somehow police departments as institutions are, are set in stone, are fixed, uh, and that they are such a reflection of the underlying society that there's nothing we can do to improve them. And certainly it's hard to change police departments. But think about other institutions that have changed. I, I sit here uh, at Colby College, beautiful Colby College in, in Maine, which has been around for many, many, many years. And uh, when, when Colby and other small colleges started out, they um, were designed uh, just to educate a very, very select number of uh, students, um, uh, men. Um, the earliest colleges uh, also designed to um, educate people who would go into the clergy or law. And colleges have changed enormously. And police departments can change too. You know, in the book, one of the cases that I spend a great deal of time with is LaGrange, Georgia which is a very interesting community. Uh, it's um, a majority black community, about an hour outside of Atlanta, with, uh, as you can imagine, uh, a, a real and, and vicious history of racism, both in the community and in the department. Uh, and yet, slowly over time, both through the efforts of uh, a visionary police chief named Lou Deckmar, and also because of work done by civic leaders uh, and activists in the community, both the community and the police department have moved forward. 
around issues of racial reconciliation, having hard conversations, uh, and that department is uh, has changed uh, for the best. So the underlying society hasn't changed, but that department has shifted. So there's more wiggle room uh, in policing. There's more opportunity for change and innovation than people sometimes think. So um, in your in your book, you boil the problems of police culture down to a few things that have to do with individual police behavior as opposed to, I guess, culture. One is their singular focus on danger and their own social isolation outside of work. I'd like you to talk a little more about those things and explain why they are so toxic and how they might feed into each other. Well, I'll give you a personal example. Uh, I was a police officer, as I said, many years ago. Um, I was uh, 22 at the time, uh, just out of college. And uh, I worked the midnight shift. Uh, so the only people that I hung out with socially were other cops who worked the midnight shift because no one else was available uh, during the workday uh, to hang out and just you know shoot the breeze. Um, I, uh, as part of the culture of policing, you're taught that you know, people are out to get you. Uh, you're taught that you shouldn't live in the community where you police because uh, people might follow you home and uh, seek vengeance on you there. So I, I lived uh, outside Berkeley, which was a community that I, I loved and had thought of as home until that time. Uh, and I have a feeling uh, quite isolated and quite lonely. And that was actually one of the reasons that I decided to leave policing when I did. You know, that story repeats itself in many agencies uh, in many cities across the country. Um, the police have always been uh, somewhat isolated from the community, even communities that profess to love their, their police. Uh, it's often the case that people don't want to be friends with cops or hang out with them because, you know, you never know. You might you might drink too much. Uh, you might uh, you know go through a light and uh, and you, know, you wonder whether your your friend's going to write your ticket or or make an arrest. So that kind of social isolation um, has always been part of policing, part of police culture, and it's dangerous. Uh, it it foments stereotypes. Uh, it leads officers to only see in the community the people that they interact with through calls and not the you know ninety five percent of the community that's you know, doing exactly what it's supposed to be doing every day, uh, it can warp an officer's perception. Um, and so in the communities that I studied, the chief tried to do things to to shake that up, to really get citizens and cops interacting in very different ways. And it was so pretty effective. How, how did they do that? And, and one of the things you said is really interesting, this idea that police officers are encouraged not to live in the communities that they police. That is a really critical issue of debate here in cities in cities like Detroit, for instance, where so many of our officers don't live in the city, and we used to have a requirement uh, that you had to you had to be a citizen uh, in order to be a part of the police department or the or the fire department. We lost uh, the ability to require that, and and a lot of folks say that's that's kind of a turning point in in the city. Uh, in terms of the interaction between um, between police and 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 citizens, how do you how do you do that? Um, and and can you talk about some places that have maybe reversed that idea and and encouraged more officers to live in the community? Well, I think incentives help. Uh, you know, if your department, uh, for example, that offers officers take home cars, the ability to to take their car. Uh, to and from work, to park it in front of their house, uh, and you uh, t 
tie the ability to do that to their living within a certain radius of the city. That can be a powerful incentive that helps uh, cops stay relatively local. But again, I think that change in culture is is key. If if you know you're a police department that's cultivated a sense of or is trying to cultivate a sense of trust between the community and and cops, cops feel much more comfortable um, actually living uh, in those neighborhoods. And I'll just say, uh, in terms of uh, shifting, uh, getting rid of this alienation, this sense of isolation, I'll tell you a story. A couple of years ago, I was out in Longmont, Colorado, which is a town of about 100,000 and not too far from Boulder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was able to take a walk with the chief there at the time, a guy named Mike Butler, a tall, kind of lanky chief who I think sounds a little bit more like a professor than, than a police chief. Uh, and he was out walking neighborhoods, uh, which he had done hundreds of times before. Um, on the weekends with a good friend of his, um, longtime activist there uh, and former city councilman. And they they would just spend hours, uh, they'd pick a neighborhood, they'd go and they'd just walk up to doors and knock on them and he'd say, hi, I'm Mike Butler, I'm the chief of police. Can you tell me about you know your experience in the neighborhood? I want to get to know you a little bit more. That experience of cops just getting out of their cars, knocking on doors, talking to people, getting to know people, that's so powerful. Uh, and of course, many police departments uh, are so busy that they say their cops don't have the time to do that. But uh, you know, think how much uh, policing could change and the relationship between cops and citizens could change if that were a more regular part of the policing enterprise. Mm -hmm. And and do we see uh, public safety in, enhanced or uh, violent crime incidents go down, for instance, when we know that police officers live in the communities where they're policing? Does it have an effect on the on the on these statistics? Well, I haven't seen any data to suggest that uh, that crime rates are, are lower in communities where uh, where cops live in those in those places. Uh, and if and if you were to see that association, of course, you wouldn't know what was driving what. It could be that cops were more likely to live in the communities uh, where they worked if the crime rates were lower. But what is is true uh, is that when you enhance trust between the police department and its citizens, uh, we do know that in those situations. Uh, crime goes down. Uh, we know that people are are less likely to commit crime. We know that people are uh, more likely to give information to the police uh, if a crime has been committed. And we know that uh, in those communities, people feel less fear of crime. So there's, there's powerful evidence on all these fronts, uh, including evidence from some really well-designed experiments. So enhancing trust between the police and the community uh, can lower the crime rate. And there's often this, this narrative in this country that the only way to bring down crime is to really get tough on it and lock up as many people as you can and throw away the key. And um, I think uh, it's kind of the opposite uh, in a sense. Um, I mean, certainly making arrests is important, um, but the more that you can do to, to build that trust with the community, uh, that's a major uh, thing that can improve public safety. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this really wonderful conversation with uh, Neil Gross, professor of sociology and former police officer who's written a book about police departments that have tried to figure it out when it comes to changing the culture uh, and the way they interact with citizens. We'll also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WBET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've decided to join us. Our guest today is Neil Gross, a professor of sociology at Colby College, a former police officer and author of the book, Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. We're talking about efforts to change policing and change the culture inside departments in order to change policing. I want to hear from you as well, uh, what you make of all of the efforts to change policing, especially after the murder of George Floyd in 2020 in Minneapolis. Are you somebody who believes we can do better by changing the way that uh, police officers interact with uh, the people they are policing? Are there things that we can change about uh, police departments that would change those interactions? Or are you somebody who believes that uh, we have to move away from the modern idea of police and police departments? Are you uh, a subscriber to the idea of defund or abolish the police? Call and tell us why and what you would do as an alternative. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we can include you in the conversation uh, that way. Let's go next to Joanne in Plymouth. Joanne, welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Um, yeah, I think that, um, you know, your speaker is got the right idea about socializing the police department. And Chief White, I think I he is very, I think he should get a lot of commendable ideas because, you know, in the summertime, they walk in neighborhoods with folks. And, um, you know, it's he talks to them and, you know, probably the people who should be there aren't there, but still, you know, he gets to know the neighborhoods. Plus there's neighborhood officers that know the names of all the people in the neighborhood as well as all their pets. And, um, you know, they're doing all these social things in neighborhoods, you know, dancing with people and having picnics with them and stuff like that. And I think that's absolutely the right way to do things. I think he's doing an absolutely great job. Mm. And I think he's also got now mental health workers going out with, uh, officers who, you know, run into situations where people are having, you know, any um, mental health problems and to try to calm down situations. Yeah, they so are trying. I, I mean, there's no question that there there's a lot of effort in uh, the Detroit Police Department, and that's what you're talking about there. Chief White is our police chief here in the city. Um, he's somebody who, for a very long time, has been talking about different ways, alternatives to uh, the, the, the kinds of uh, training and interactions that uh, that we see pretty frequently with the police, not just in the city, but other places. And, and, you know, as police chief, he has really tried, I think, to implement a lot of those things. At the same time, uh, we've had some really high-profile breakdowns uh, of the relationship between police and, and citizens in uh, in the city while he's while he's been chief. I think he's tried to handle those things in the best way he could, but I think he would also say there's still just a long way to go. There's a lot to do to change that relationship so that uh, 
the the, the danger that uh, that people in the city in a city that is eighty uh, percent African American feel from the police is uh, is not there. Mary or uh, Joanne, I really appreciate the call uh, and those observations. Let's go next to Mary Jo in Gross Point. Mary Jo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the discussion because. Number one, I think um, police presence in communities on a normal basis would do a lot to deter the fear that is a factor in so many of these encounters. And secondly, we um, are on, we are raising a generation of kids in some places, and that's urban and suburban, who don't have much hope because they lack the ability to read and write and interact. And I think investing in education in the right places would uh, do a lot to, as your other guest was talking about, change society. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Mary Jo, really appreciate both of those, both of those points. I think they're really critical to this conversation and, and to our thinking about those things. Before we get to the next uh, caller or social media comment, Neil, I want to give you a chance to talk about police recruiting. Uh, You've said in interviews that we are recruiting the wrong people to be police officers. So tell me why that's true, uh, who we should be trying to get into police departments and, and how we attract them. Well, there's no question that there's a serious police recruiting crisis right now. It's not everywhere, but it's in in most places. Uh, That's a function of of various factors. Obviously, there's labor shortages throughout the economy uh, at the moment. Law enforcement is no different. Um, I think the challenges in in policing are are particularly acute. Uh, It's it's risky work, um, physically risky. uh, It's legally risky. Um, I think increasingly communities want cops with with more education and life experience. Those people have plenty of other opportunities. Uh, and I will say that in some quarters, um, not everywhere, of course, it's it's an increasingly stigmatized uh, profession. You know, police work is one of those professions where people have always gotten paid, at least in part, in honor. Uh, that is, that they've done the job partially because of the money and partially because they think it's important, but also because they've gotten a certain kind of esteem from the community. And Mm -hmm. and when that diminishes, uh, that lessens the attraction of it. So I think there's two ways that departments can go in in trying to recruit people into law enforcement. Uh, One is to keep trying to hire from the same pool that we've been trying to hire from uh, all along um, and keep doing the same thing. You're going to get the same results. Or I think departments can lean into the current moment. And I think actually Detroit is, is doing that pretty well. You, know, you can mount recruiting campaigns um, aimed at people who want to go into law enforcement precisely to hold offenders accountable and to make policing more fair, more equitable. Um, I think Detroit's police recruiting model right now is, is be the change. Not for Certainly for many of the black officers I got to know, that was a major motivator to get into policing because they wanted to do a kind of policing, police work that uh, was was utterly, utterly different. I had a conversation not long after George Floyd's murder with one of the officers uh, in Stockton, California, another city that I profile, much, much larger city with a serious gang and uh, gun violence problem, uh, a black officer. And, uh, and he, he told me that he, uh, like so many people, 
broke down uh, after he watched uh, the video of, uh, of Mr. Floyd's murder. And he said he had a, a moment of, of um, existential crisis when he you know, wondered whether the career choice he'd made had been uh, the right one or, or part of the problem. And then he, as he's put it, sort of came to his senses and realized that he got into police work uh, exactly so that uh, under his watch anyway, uh, what had happened to George Floyd wouldn't happen to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's go to Matthew, who is in North Carolina. Matthew, welcome to the show. How you doing, sir? I'm uh, I'm just driving through Detroit. I'm a truck driver, and I was listening to the program, and, you know, I was, you know, thinking about what y'all was saying about what what can police do, you know, but the police in my community – they do a lot of community service, you know, a lot of outreach, you know, they, they, you know, they're out in the community, you know, and I believe that builds community trust, you know, and, it, and it's like, I was, you know, the, I believe you're talking about the police chief, you know, going knock on doors, mm-hmm. you know, you know, I believe that that helps a lot. You know, you, you put people out there in, you know, out there in the community, in the towns, in the suburbs and, you know, that builds trust, you know, and if you know who you're talking to, if you get cited or, you know, whatever, you know, I believe that helps a lot, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, whether it's a lieutenant, sergeant, chief, commissioner, you know, it, don't, it doesn't matter, you know, just so Matthew, out, tell me, a, and, tell me a little uh, more about the community that you live in. What, what, uh, what kind of community is it? It's just a small town, uh, maybe three red lights, you know. <laughs> Uh, very country, mm-hmm. and you know, and it's a it's a tight it's a tight knit community, you know, and you know everybody helps everybody there, you know, and yeah. um, and uh, and I wouldn't be afraid to go talk to the lieutenant at my police station and be like, hey, you know, I'm having a problem on the quarter sack down down the road from my house, you know, because I believe there's, you know, something something shifty going on, you know what I mean? Sure. And, and it, I had that trust, you know, because I, you know, I know they're out there at the baseball game. They're I know they're out there, yeah. you know, out, you know, like my son plays soccer, you know, they're, you know, they're out there, you know, so. Yeah. Matthew, I really appreciate the call and, and the example. And I love that uh, you're driving through Detroit and listening to WDET. Thanks so much for, for calling in. Uh, Neil, there were a couple of things that he said that, that remind me of, uh, things that you're you're talking about here and in your book, this idea of going beyond the interactions um, uh, that police have with citizens over crime or potential crime and just interacting um, is is really key. And that that cultural change to me seems to be at odds with some of what you have described. Um, from from police departments that are encouraging kind of the opposite behavior from from their officers. You know, I, I think that policing today uh, in many places um, it reflects um, the way that the profession, the way the occupation changed uh, as nine one one calls uh, became um, the main way to, to contact law enforcement. Many departments. Uh, you know, 80s, 90s, uh, and certainly in more recent decades, uh, interact with citizens uh, just when someone calls 911, uh, they report some kind of a crisis, uh, the cops go, they deal with the crisis, 
uh, and they move on uh, to the next 911 call. You know, the community that the caller describes sounds like it's a, a small, small town with relatively few uh, calls for service, but certainly in, in many places, uh, calls for service, the volume of those calls is, is enormous. Uh, and so in some places, uh, officers, you know, in the absence of some uh, administrative uh, uh, directive, can spend most of their shifts responding to 911 calls. And that just doesn't leave much room for officers to, to get out of their cars. So chiefs need to really make space in their officer's day. They need to allocate uh, patrol resources pretty effectively uh, to make it so that, that cops can can do those interactions on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 uh, is the number here on the phones. John on the east side, we've got about a minute and a half left. John, go ahead. So, Steve, as you know, we got uh, about a mile of, of the first mile of the Detroit River of parks down here in Jefferson Chalmers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of them 60 acres, another one's 35, another one's 28. And they're just huge areas. And I, uh, over the last four decades, three decades here, the police do exactly that. They wait until there's a 911 call. And so what we've been suggesting to the city is to have men and um, people in green, park rangers unarmed down there facilitating the activities and put some more funding into activities. That way you don't need to call 911. You don't need the police down there. We don't want police in our parks. We want people in our parks. Mm. And so when you talk about defunding, it's not defunding, it's reallocating. Yeah. John, I I don't want to cut you off, but I want to get our guest a chance to respond. I think it's a really good point. Uh, Neil, I've got just about a minute left, but go ahead. You know, I think the evidence is is clear that while policing is helpful in, in reducing crime. It's certainly not the only thing that, that can uh, reduce crime. I think the data suggests uh, nationally that uh, when we build up communities, uh, when we you know, have more nonprofits uh, in communities, when we have uh, programs for youth in communities, uh, those things can all also uh, go a, a great deal toward, toward reducing crime. So I certainly don't want to suggest that policing and, and better policing is the only solution. But I will say that people are uh, rightfully ready for policing in this country to change. And policy change alone isn't going to do it. Uh, cultural changes is really important. You know, the three cities that I studied, I hope, are examples of places where, you know, you, people went in and really tried to do policing in, in a different way. And if it can happen in these three communities, uh, I think there's no reason it can't happen everywhere else. Yeah. Okay. Neil Gross, uh, it was really great to have you here with us to talk about all this. And a reminder that his book is Walk the Walk, How Three Police Chiefs Defied the Odds and Changed Cop Culture. Neil, thanks for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you. Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the beginning of recreational marijuana sales here in the city of Detroit. We're going to talk about what impact that may have on the city and on the folks who live here. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow. <laughs>